You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, as we come to opening up this section in 1 John as we begin new series today, it'd be so helpful to have your Bible still open at 1 John chapter 1. There's also an outline in the back of the news, so if that is of help, there's some uh, notes in English, Korean, Dinka, and simplified Chinese. But right now, let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Gracious Father, would you please be at work right now, illuminating your word in the power of your spirit, that we might be strengthened in our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin a whole new series today in 1 John, it's probably good to put up front and centre that actually there's quite a bit that we don't know about the first letter to John. I say letter, but it's really quite distinctive in style and in many ways it resembles more of a poetic sermon than a letter. We call it John, but you'll note that it's anonymous. The author doesn't identify themselves, but because of the features it shares with the Gospel of John and some other clues, it's long been attested that the author is the Apostle John, now in his senior years. And we actually don't even know the precise audience to whom John writes, but we think it's probably a community of house churches in Asia Minor. So there's a bit that we don't know. But what we do know for certain is that these communities to whom John writes are facing a crisis of confidence that has potential to undermine their trust in Jesus. Just really a few weeks ago, on March 9 this year, the US experienced the second largest bank failure in the nation's history. So the largest bank collapse was the Washington Mutual. That unfolded over about eight months back in 2008. This collapse, the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, Well, it unfolded over the course of 48 hours as as customers withdrew $42 billion in just one day. There are, of course, reasons why that happened, many problems that led to the bank's collapse. People were already nervous about the bank. But as tweets started to circulate and as news went out, people's confidence was not only shaken but their trust rapidly evaporated. Their diminished confidence undermined their trust and it caused them to run. The potential crisis of confidence that these communities to whom John writes is much more serious because it's not just their confidence in an institution and trust with their material possessions, but this crisis has the potential to undermine their confidence in the gospel message And accordingly, their trust in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus for salvation. It seems that, as John writes, a group who had belonged previously to this community, well, they now have broken away with some really distorted ideas about the gospel. There seems to be two main issues at stake. The first issue, it seems, is that this breakaway group no longer thinks that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, for example, John says, 
in chapter 2, verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's not just a, a random reflection of John. It's, it's pointed at this group. That's the first issue. The second issue, it seems, is that this breakaway group no longer thinks that Jesus was fully human. Fully human and fully divine, but they have abandoned the idea that he was fully human. So, for example, John says in chapter 4, verse 2, this is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, not only does it mean that this group is in error, not only has it led them wayward and adopting all sorts of sinful practices, but it also seems that this group is seeking to actively undermine the faithful community whom they have left behind. The believers to whom John writes have stood firm. John writes to affirm the steadfastness encouraging them to keep walking faithfully with God and with one another. All sorts of things can cause us to question what we believe. All sorts of things can nibble around the edges or really chomp away at our confidence in the gospel message. In fact, it's not hard to imagine those faithful believers who have been left behind in light of this breakaway community distorting the gospel, that the faithful might be beginning to wonder, what if they're right? What if we're wrong? What if Jesus isn't the Messiah? What if he wasn't really human? We might not know for sure who wrote the letter or to whom it was written, but John tells us what matters that the reason he writes these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God is so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's goal. That's what John wants them to be confident in and us as well. And so he begins by reminding them of three simple things that will strengthen their trust in God. Their, strength, their trust will be strengthened by being confident in message, honest about sin, and assured of forgiveness. First, the trust will be strengthened by being confident in the message. So, verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, the beginning that John speaks of here, it's not a flashback to the beginning of creation, like that at the beginning of the Gospel of John, but the beginning of God's revelation in the world in Jesus. He's saying our message hasn't been changed along the way. It's the same as it was from the beginning. And so John wants them to be left without a doubt that the convictions are not make-believe, but grounded in the historical person of Jesus as verified by eyewitnesses. So just note how, how tangible John's descriptors are. That which we have heard, seen, looked and touched. There can be no mistake. Not only was Jesus the word of life, 
He was real. He was human. They had seen Jesus through his life. They had witnessed his death. They had verified his resurrection. Now, I know there's all sorts of claims from time to time that Jesus never really existed that go floating around. In fact, one study just last year suggested or found that 49% of Australians don't believe that Jesus was a real person who lived. And I have to say that, all respect, that that's actually irrational to think that. There's no history professor in the world who denies that Jesus existed. For some at the time when John wrote to suggest that Jesus wasn't really human, just doesn't stack up with the facts. But know that John isn't satisfied with merely the reassurance that Jesus lived, but he wants them to grasp and be filled with joy by the implications of his life. That which we have heard, seen, looked, touched, we proclaim. So verse 2, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared, the apostles witnessed, the news shared in order because so that we would believe and have eternal life. This is not just information, but this is invitation into relationship. Note how John keeps moving between we, you, and us language. In fact, it can be a bit confusing. So we, that is the apostles, they proclaim. To you, that is the readers of the letter, including us, what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. You can almost imagine them saying, we have fellowship with God and our job won't be done until you do too. John is not saying that it's through your connection to the apostles that you're connected to God, but that as you receive and believe the testimony from them about Jesus, well, you also become connected in fellowship with God through Christ and therefore we become connected together. When you get to know Jesus, God also makes us into community. Now, John's going to have lots more to say about that and how they're to express that in their day-to-day lives, but how the readers of John's letter needed to hear that. Not only do they potentially face a crisis of confidence and conviction of who Jesus is, but they're also facing a crisis of confidence in community as it's been fractured, as it's been ruptured. You can imagine them being willing to make all sorts of compromises to fulfil the longings to be reunited. But they can have no real fellowship with those who left because real fellowship only comes connection through who Jesus is. That Jesus is the real Lord. He's the one who really brings us together. The Jesus that those others who have left, the Jesus who they are proclaiming is just a Jesus of their imagination. 
but the Jesus who the apostles proclaim and that this community trusts in is real. We write this, John says, to make our joy complete. There's all sorts of debate as to who John is precisely referring to when he says our joy complete, if it's the joy of the apostles in sharing or the joy in the community in receiving the news. But don't miss what's really undergirding it all. The message about Jesus and the life he brings is one of joy. Over the years, I've read uh, many biographies of Antarctic explorers. It's one of my favourite sort of like sub-genres of, of books. And whenever I read them, I find it really fascinating reading the, the history about those explorers and reflecting on the history of those explorers. But the gospel is dramatically different from that. This is not just history we're removed from. It's relationship we're invited to participate in. Jesus isn't simply a figure of history to know about, but he is someone you can and you should know. We can be confident in the message. Second, their trust will be strengthened by being honest about sin. So verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive our, ourselves and the truth is not in us. So hear what John is saying. Because God is light, not only is there no darkness in him, darkness by its very nature is incompatible with light, but because God is light, those who are in him should walk in his way and not in the way of darkness. When the Bible uses the word light to describe God, there's often two meanings in mind. Light in terms of God revealing himself, of the light dawning and, and shining brightly, but also light in terms of God's absolute purity and holiness in whom there is no darkness. Actually, we see both of those elements of light being expressed here. The light of God has been revealed in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But we also see light in terms of God's nature, that, that his holiness is incompatible with our sinfulness. John says, therefore, stop walking in the way of darkness and instead walk in the way of light. When John uses that word walking, it carries a, a connotation of how we habitually and consistently live. It's a way of life. All throughout the Bible, we, we see uh, God describing his people as, as people who should be walking with him. Often there's critiques saying they're not walking faithfully with him. I think one of the most beautiful examples of that, of relationship with God, was the potential for people to walk with God in the cool of the day of the garden, right back at the beginning of the Bible. But sin sets us on a, a different path, a path that doesn't run parallel to God's, but actually in defiance in the opposite direction. John doesn't expect that we will never sin. Note he says, if we claim to be without sin, then we are deluding ourselves. 
but we are not to turn a blind eye to it, ignore it, or think it doesn't matter. If you do that, John says, you're living a lie. The truth is not in you. It's a really important reminder to us, pretty sober reminder, that we must not take sin lightly. We must not ignore it, deny it, minimise it, or try to justify it for ourselves. The part of walking with God, of, of living in personal relationship with God, is simply and regularly welcoming God to put a finger on the things in our life that keep us out of step with his ways. At the time when uh, John wrote, the, the breakaway group had all sorts of problematic views about sin. It was pretty comprehensive, actually. They seemed to deny the problem of sin, that it damages our relationship with God. They seemed to deny the pervasiveness of sin, that actually our human fallen nature means sin a problem for us all. They seemed to even deny their own personal sin, that they were actually guilty of any wrongdoing. They were living a comprehensive lie. The, the denial of sin, of course, didn't change the reality, but it would have radically shaped and changed their response. Can you see that? So if we deny or ignore or minimise sin, it will prevent us from going to the very one who can help. That if you think sin has no effect, is not a problem or not a, your problem, then you won't go to the one who has paved a way for us to stand in his presence. Just this week, there was an eclipse uh, viewable in some parts of Australia. And, you know, whenever there is an eclipse coming up, there's lots of advertising, it's on all the media outlets, and usually it comes with a slew of warnings saying, please, when this eclipse happens, do not look directly at the sun for, for a long period of time. And, of course, what happens every time, there's a huge number of people, which is also often reported, who end up in the emergency room with either temporary or permanent eye damage, because guess what? They looked at the sun for a protracted period of time. But here's the extraordinary news. We cannot possibly come into God's presence, into God's holiness in our own terms. But we also need not to run away from the light, because God has opened up a way for us to have fellowship with him through his own blood, through himself. Part of walking in God's light is simply being honest about sin, being sincere, honest and transparent before God about our, our messy, rebellious and sometimes unbelieving lives because it's then we'll know what it means to be assured of forgiveness. That's the third thing that the trust will be strengthened by. Verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is such good news, but actually there are two key ways that we can misunderstand such grace. You know, one misunderstanding is to say, well, grace allows me to do whatever I want, I can behave however I want. Uh, the other misunderstanding is to suggest that, well, if I sin... Do I invalidate God's grace? But John corrects both. To those who might be tempted to say, well, I can do whatever I want because I've received grace, John says, I write these things not that you would sin, it's not permission to sin, but verse 1, my dear children, so that you will not sin. 
This seems to be part of the misunderstanding of the breakaway group. And of course, it's not only disingenuous to live in disregard for God's laws, but it's incompatible with being recipients of God's forgiveness. We can't say we both love the light and love the darkness. But how about the other misunderstanding of suggesting that, well, if I sin, then I must have invalidated grace? What does John say? Back to verse 1. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When John says, if anybody does sin, he, of course, doesn't mean that we won't, or there are you know, some special group of people who, who never do, but that when we do, we can be assured of forgiveness when we go to him. Why? Well, certainly not because of ourselves, but because Jesus, described as the perfectly righteous one, remember he's God, in him there is no darkness at all, but because of his love, he took on all the darkness, all our sins, and became an atoning sacrifice for us and the sins of the whole world. What can give us real confidence is not some sort of mistaken belief that God turns a blind eye to our sin. The image here is a courtroom, and Jesus isn't pleading before the Father to say, well, just can you forget about it? Can you sweep it under the carpet? That, that would make us feel so insecure, because we'd always be wondering if eventually God is just going to be fed up. No, what can give us confidence is that God is perfectly just, and because Jesus has paid the price for our sin, justice demands that the debt need not be paid twice. So that affords us the most incredible freedom, not to sin, but there's nothing that we need to hold back. There's nothing that we can't bring to God. Confession is part of walking in God's light. Confessing is part of inviting God to shine his light into the depths of our heart. Now, of course, that happens the very first time that we go to God in confession, trusting in him. That's when we become forgiven people. We've been declared forgiven. forgiven. That status is assured. Our salvation is not dependent upon future performance, but because Jesus has died for us and risen, that gives us the most incredible security. However, because we long to walk in God's light, because we're not yet made perfect, we also keep coming to God in confession, sorry for the ways that our lives don't line up, participating in God's continuing work of transformation in us, longing for a future when our sin will be finally put to an end, and rejoicing in the forgiveness that has been afforded to us. Kelly Capic, in his book, uh, Embodied Hope, I think so helpfully puts it like this. What does such confession do? We need confession because we need forgiveness, cleansing, healing and restoration. Yet one might respond, believers already have all this. Jesus' death secures our relationship with God. It is finished. If we make forgiveness, cleansing, healing and restoration contingent on the act of confession then we risk cultivating further insecurity among God's people. For who knows if we have ever confessed all our sins? 
In response, we should realise that what we are talking about here is not merely the declaration of pardon, but the experience of pardon. Every Christian will face seasons in their life that have the potential to cause a crisis of confidence. It could be false teaching, it could be illness or struggle or temptation. It could be just as equally prosperity or unfulfilled longings or just distraction. Don't wait for the crisis to start building foundations for trust. Do whatever is helpful now to grow your confidence in the message, honesty about sin, and assurance of forgiveness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that in your great love, mercy and generosity towards us, that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. We thank you that as we put our trust in him, that as we recognise him as Saviour and Lord, that we are forgiven. Thank you for the security that is afforded to us through him. Lord, as we seek to be your people, we pray that you would help us to not walk in ways of darkness, but to walk in your light. Please, in the power of your spirit, would you shine a light into our hearts, into the areas of our lives which we are not walking in your ways. Lord, we are so sorry. Lord, please help us to live faithfully. And we pray that you would be growing in us a confidence in the gospel message, honesty about our sin, and the experience over and over again of forgiveness that has been assured. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.